Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Madison Connaughton, and I am very honoured to be here tonight in conversation at the Sydney Writers Festival with Jennifer Egan. Um, to start, I wanted to say we're on Gadigal land in the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the Gadigal people who have cared for this land since before time. Uh, sovereignty was never ceded, and this always was and always will be Gadigal land. Our guest, Jennifer Egan, needs no introduction, but just to get the formalities out of the way, she is the author of six novels, including the Pulitzer Prize winning A Visit from the Goon Squad and Manhattan Beach. Her latest is The Candy House. Can you please join me in welcoming Jennifer Egan? <laughs> Jennifer, to start, I guess The Candy House has been called a sibling or a twin of your novel, uh, A Visit from, from the Goon Squad. Your previous books tended to be quite formally different from one another, and I was wondering what made you want to return to these characters and this terrain? Did you feel like you had some unfinished business? Well, yes, in a way I did. And it's the nature of these books that they are kind of always unfinished because each chapter is about a different person and each of us has our own constellation of, of people and history around us. So by, even by the time I finished A Visit from the Goon Squad, I had ongoing curiosity about certain people that was already extending beyond the borders of that book. And so even actually on my book tour for A Visit from the Goon Squad, I was already working on the chapter now called Lulu the Spy, not with a sense that, oh, I wish I could have slipped this in because it really felt like a different animal. It was even more structurally kind of extreme um, than I think would have worked in A Visit from the Goon Squad. But I somehow I, I already had structural and um, character curiosities that were leading me beyond it. And I think it feels quite fitting that we're speaking through a screen, given the sort of occupation of uh, the candy house and, and how it is quite um, interested in exploring technology and it's based in this world that's sort of refracted and distorted by technology. Um, I, I was wondering about that sort of central catalyst of the story, a, a technology that allows you to externalise your, your memories and, and share them into the collective and into the, into the cloud. Um, was that, for you, that idea, the starting point for this novel? Sort of what was the seed that, that started this? Actually, it was one of the last things to fall into place. Uh, I... I, I always start with certain abstract ideas, but this machine and what it would do was a very late recognition of what the work was already telling me existed in the world that I was creating. So in other words, I would bump up against in various chapters, things that the machine let people do and certain narrative things that I was interested in doing, I, I realized later the machine would allow me to do. For example, I was very interested in writing something in which a person can track down and, and actually see flashes of the life of someone that they've glimpsed just once, once in their lives, let's say. A passing acquaintance that about whom they have so little identifying information that they can't even look on social media. Um, and so I, but I, I found myself thinking, but how can I do that? Like what, what earns me the right to actually have a chapter in which that happens? How, how do people do that? Um, so that was one question. And in other chapters, I would get glimmers of a world in which people had more access to each other's thoughts. For example, there's a chapter about a guy who works in tech in the 2030s and he is in love with his colleague and trying to figure out how to make her fall in love with him. And he briefly um, considers the idea of actually viewing some of her consciousness so that he can see like what she likes and what might win her over. But then he immediately just regards that idea as an invasion and, you know, an alienating and unacceptable thing to do. So I, I was getting glimmers of that, but it really was only in the last year, let's say, that I worked on it. And I began it in 2010. Um, 
that the machine itself with its various capabilities came into focus. There's something I love about the the way you've structured the technology is that it's sort of how much you're willing to give to the cloud is how much that you can get out of it. And it sort of reminded me a bit of LinkedIn, like you can only see who's viewed your profile if you let people sort of see if you've, you've viewed them. And I guess that gamification of our emotions and our memories and, and how much we're willing to play into these systems. Was that something that you were sort of playing with, taking what happens with social media now and sort of tracing the thread into the future? I didn't think about it consciously in that way, but but in retrospect, absolutely. I mean, the machine, the so-called machine, is really just an exaggerated form of what we already have. And it's interesting, I'm not on LinkedIn, but the, the analogy that came to me about the giving to get equation was DNA analysis and information sharing. Because I love the thought of, of finding out if I have relatives out there that you know I might not know about, and I, but I, I haven't even had my DNA analyzed, but I also know that in order to find that out, one has to make one, one's own results available, and which is kind of only fair. Um, so the give to get model is so common online, and it, it serves the the powers that organ that are you know profiting from all this very well because you know engagement is the golden word, and that's what everyone wants. So we have these incentives to engage because we have to engage to get certain information that we want. And in fact, a lot of the ways that this machine is used in the book are are really about satisfying curiosity. Um, children wanting to understand parents better, um, people wanting to understand their own past better. So it's very much, it's it's driven by these very human needs, you know, social media, what, whatever it is that helps us find each other and know each other. Um, these are such basic human longings. And, but when they happen through tech, they are becoming complex and profitable to others in, way that, in ways that we don't really recognize in the moment. But it, I never meant it to be an indictment of any of that, partly because I think that's kind of boring at this point. You know, we, we're all becoming aware of the, um, you know, the attention economy and our roles in it. For me, the fun of it was just to bring this more extreme form into dramatic uh, interaction with characters. And the book opens with um, sort of the story or the chapter of this tech entrepreneur or genius, um, Bix Bowden, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, and he's he's sort of this amazing, intelligent man who's created a technology but is now sort of facing the prospect of what's next and maybe the you know, threat of a bit of relevance depriva deprivation if he can't come up with the next big thing. And this sort of externalised memory um, technology is what gives him, you know, the next phase of his life. But I was curious why he's quite a sympathetic character, you know, and I feel like we have a lot of sort of megalomaniac tech entrepreneurs that one might point to in the world. And why did you want to render him as sort of, he's quite a sympathetic person. You, you, you do sort of like him as you're reading his story. Well, I would say that if I were going to, even if I were going to write about a megalomaniac, I would, my job would be to make that person sympathetic. I see that as actually the fundamental requirement if I'm going to write about anyone, because otherwise I'm writing about someone who is alienating. And that means another way of saying that is just not interesting, someone we don't care about. So but however, as you say, Bix is actually not a megalomaniac. He's he's much more a guy who, you know, he has the equivalent of writer's block. He has like a blank, a blank space in his mind where an idea should be. Um, and I, I guess I just um, I love the thought of someone like him becoming a tech icon. You know, we meet him very briefly in a visit from the Goon Squad. Most people don't even remember that moment. But in that in that book, he has has a, a scene in which he basically predicts social media. He says to two NYU undergraduates, they've had a night of partying, they're standing by the East River, 
at dawn and um, one of them says, you know, let's remember this even when we don't know each other anymore. And Vic says, oh, <laughs> we're all going to know each other. You know, we're looking into a future where everyone we've lost will find and they'll find us. And in the moment that he says that, I mean, I think a lot of us knew a person like that in the early 90s, the, the person who was online before any of us even knew what that meant. But when he said that, I thought, ah, I love the thought that he goes on to invent social media. And that was another one of those bits of unfinished business that you, that was your phrase, that kind of led me back to this material, really almost before I had left it. Um, but yeah, so I think there was a way in which Bix was always, we meet him as a kind of sympathetic grad. It would actually be interesting to write about a tech megalomaniac um, because the job would be to render him or her for the reader in such a way that their choices seem not only uncomprehensible, but, but essential. I, I see that as the challenge always of writing about someone. Maybe the next book. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. I mean, the other thing is, I'm, I'm very, with the minute I get a whiff of familiarity in what I'm doing, like, okay, we've seen, this is a type that we recognize. That's a, that's really a turnoff for me. So I guess if I was going to write about a tech icon, it seemed more interesting to have that person not have the megalomaniac maniac personality that we expect, just because not that you can't take a type and dig in deeper so that we understand that in a way, no one is really a type. Everyone is an individual, um, but it just feels familiar. So I like to push against that feeling of familiarity wherever I can. I feel like you've been circling tech for a while. You grew up in San Francisco near sort of the proto Silicon Valley. I read, and I don't know if this is correct, but that you dated Steve Jobs when you were in college. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yes. <laughs> um, and I was just wondering, I guess, in those early uh, days of, of technology sort of being threaded through our lives, did you were you someone who was optimistic about what it would do for humanity or, or did you have a level of, of wariness about where this was going? Well, it's interesting. I think, I mean, I'm not drawn to technology. Like some people just like to get a shiny new machine and want the new thing when it comes along. I'm exactly the opposite. I wait until the old thing breaks or I drop a glass of water into my laptop um, so I'm not I'm not drawn to it as a thing, and and maybe because of my own quasi incompetence um, with technology, I view it from in a personal way with distrust. Um, but and also, but I think that the reason I'm so drawn to it is probably not even biographical or geographical. Although it's true that as I was growing up in the in San Francisco in the 1970s, tech was evolving, but we actually did not know that. <laughs> and when I say we, I mean sort of like the average San Franciscan. Um, I had never heard of Silicon Valley. I'm not sure that the phrase had even been coined yet as I was growing up. I never, I encountered one computer in the late 70s at a babysitting job um, where the dad had an Apple computer. And I thought, oh, it's sort of like a very small television with a with a kind of typewriter attached. What's the point? Um, so I'm not inclined toward technology, but when I think about the what I've witnessed in my lifetime, which in a way is is some of what I bring to whatever I do. You know, I, ha I although I don't write about myself, I'm certainly not an auto fictionalist, or and I don't write about people I know. But on some level. I am witnessing a certain series of events in the course of my life. And some of that is, is going to come into the work. And I feel like one of the biggest things I've witnessed is the development of telecommunications. I mean, you know, I was, I'm technically a baby boomer. I was born in 1962. And by the time I went to university, I only one real innovation had come along, which was call waiting. So that was, you know, if you think about those 18 years with basically no development, no evolution that, that we could see, 
Um, you know, then the answering machine became popular when I was in college. That was huge. Think about it. Without that, you know, making a phone call meant it rang and rang and rang, or you got a busy signal until call waiting, or someone answered. I mean, it, it's almost hard to conceive of what that was like. And when I told, when I tried to tell my children this a few years ago, one of them said, "Well, was there electricity?" <laughs> So to him, that is how outrageous this landscape, this technological landscape I was describing was. So I am, you know, infinitely fascinated by the the proliferation of every new twist and turn of of technology and the ways in which it has become ever more personal, closer and closer to the body. Um, and and more and more deeply interwoven with our inner lives. I think it's so interesting what you say about technology getting closer to the body, because when I was reading um, your book, I, I was thinking about how A Visit from the Goon Squad was kind of written at this moment when technology was completely changing the music industry and invading the music industry, if you, you want to put it that way. And then in the Candy House, there are so many references to technology kind of invading the body. You know, there's um, sort of, there's uh, trackers in, in characters' brains that are called weevils. There's um, sort of a very beautiful spy who is sort of biohacked. Um, and I was just wondering, like, that sort of, invasion of the body did is that something that you were you were playing with when you were writing this how comfortable people are with with technology being not just part of their lives but in them yeah I mean I it happened very naturally and I was I was in a way not surprised to see it you know in in this book and a visit from the goon squad I've been somewhat forced to write into the future just in order to visit characters that we know are a certain age at a certain time later in their lives. I really don't have a choice. It's not something I naturally was inclined to with Goon Squad, and I resisted it to the point of briefly considering moving my entire timeline backward so that I wouldn't have to go into the future, but then that put me into, like, the era of Elvis. So I was, you know, no more punk rock, and obviously none of that was going to work. Um, so when I imagine into the future, it just feels very natural that technology and the physical form merge. So for example, the first chapter that I was working on of this book is, as you said, well, it's the one that you're mentioning. It's a futuristic story about a minor character from Goon Squad named Lulu. And we now see her as a woman in her 30s who's undercover for the U.S. government, um, infiltrating a group of men who are believed to be plotting against America. And I remember there was a moment as I was writing this when I thought, well, how is she going to, I wanted her to record what someone was saying, but it was inconceivable that she would have any recording equipment with her. I mean, she'd just been swimming in the sea and then walked into a villa with this guy. Where, where would a tape recorder be? And the fact that I was in the future made it so easy. And in fact, it just happened spontaneously. Oh, of course, the, the equipment is inside her. It's so convenient. And honestly, there are moments where I'm so tired of looking for my phone. I think I just wish it were like attached to me. And this is me. This is someone who's not even that interested in technology. To me, you know, the, the, the Apple Watch is, you know, it's, it's as close as we've gotten right now to kind of every attached to and adjacent to the body. And I totally see why that is desirable, but it's also kind of weird and, and fascinating. Um, so it was just, it felt, you know, Jane Smiley used a phrase once that I really love, which is the energy of logic. I feel like a lot of what I'm doing, especially the way I write fiction, which is spont very spontaneous in the first drafts and pretty improvisational, I feel like I'm following the energy of logic into conclusions that seem pretty inevitable when they appear on the page. I wanted to ask you some slightly nerdy questions about your writing process, if that's okay, because I feel Absolutely. like... Absolutely. I always want to know that stuff. <laughs> I feel like Writers' Festival audiences always have a few aspiring writers in the crowd. Um, and I guess... 
it's such a broad question, but like, how does one even start to write a book as sprawling as The Candy House or A Visit from the Goon Squad? Like, are you building character profiles? Are you drawing crazy maps of how everyone is interconnected? It's, I guess it's just how do you write these, these sprawling stories? I mean, in a way, I write everything that I do the same way, but there are differences for each project. Um, so the, the key elements for me are, one is handwriting. I write fiction almost always and exclusively by hand, whereas with journalism, all on a computer. I think that that is about accessing my unconscious um, and and thereby getting beyond what often feel like pretty predictable ideas that I have consciously. If I just sit down and think, what kind of story should I tell? I'm not going to come up with anything all that good. And I'm fascinated about why that is. I don't know, (laughs) but it doesn't matter. I don't want to write that kind of story. So I use handwriting to get into a more meditative, blind, improvisational state. And as with any kind of improv, I'm looking for, I'm sort of just writing and and seeking out some line of possibility or action that feels alive and then pushing into that. So there's a kind of will toward extremes, let's say, in my very process. And, you know, I like it if if I find a dramatic situation and I push into it. Sometimes it goes too far, but what I'm looking for is to reach a point of, of absurdity and sometimes hilarity, but that is still within that realm of logic. So I think my writing tends toward those moments, partly for because of the very way that I go about it. Um, anyway, once I have a first draft, I type it up, which in the case of a long novel like Manhattan Beach meant typing up 28 legal pads full of writing that had happened over the course of a year and a half. Very daunting. With a project like Goon Squad or um, The Candy House, I guess this is where they are particular. I write those in pieces. So in a way, the writing part is a little easier in that it is happening piecemeal. I'm not dealing with hundreds of pages of unread material Um, The real challenge with these books comes later when I have to understand the structure of the material itself. So with A Visit from the Goon Squad, I thought it would be backwards chronologically. That was an idea I really held on to. But in the moment, I I found that it didn't read well in that form. And with The Candy House, it was also, it was really a process to figure out what, what the material was telling me about how it should be organized. But your question about where do I start, like with a character, I, it's two things. One is kind of a lot of abstract lists of things that I'm interested in and ideas that I like the idea of trying. So on that list for the candy house were things like first person plural. I'd never done that. It seemed like it would be fun. Really wanted to do an epistolary chapter if I could. Um, had I had really wanted to try writing fiction in Twitter at 140 characters, which was part of what, how I ended up writing the spy story. So, you know, wishes like that. And then some very abstract ideas that seem very dry if I, if I relate them at any length. But just to give you one example, the paradox between data and human life. The fact that data explains human life and yet human life, an individual completely eludes um, any kind of data analysis. I mean, we fit into categories and yet we're completely individual. So sort of a a paradox like that, which would seem a little dry for fiction. So I'll have these abstract lists, but then my entry point is almost at the opposite end of the spectrum. It's really a sense of time and place, a kind of earthy connection to to the earth, you know, that comes before characters. And I think maybe it's because these ideas are so abstract that I literally need to be grounded when I start in some form of atmosphere and feeling. And I start writing from there in that improvisational way and the characters come right away, ideally, or they don't. But the, the way that I um, sort of demand of myself that I get through this improvisational phase is that I try to fill a certain number of pages a day. 
And that's all I require. Doesn't have to be good. I don't know if it's good because I'm writing in a very forward kind of heedless way. And usually that's five to seven pages for a project per day, just to kind of spew out a first draft. Then I type it up and try to take stock of what it is. And then, and then very intentionally with outlines, not exactly diagrams, but definitely plans, I, I work hard to try to get it closer to that goal. And I noticed through that multiple drafts. <laughs> through many, many refining drafts. Um, I noticed that the Candy House is dedicated to your writers group. Um, and I wondered, is that kind of a key part of this process? You've sort of gotten all of this out of your brain and then you have this sort of sounding, sounding board of, does this make any, any sense? Yes, they are essential. Um, and I've been with some combination of those people working since the early 90s. We actually started out as a class. People often say, like, how do I find a writing group? My answer is always to take a class. Um, this was just a, a poet teaching out of her home. And for a couple of years, we were paying her, you know, a modest sum and coming in every other week, I think. And then we reached a point where she wanted to share work. So we stopped the payment part. And she's actually still in the group, that original poet. Um, that I love having them. And I think part of it is that I am so, so improvisational, so um, driven by instinct and spontaneity rather than a plan. My goal, my questions are not so much does it make sense, but early on, is it alive is the big question. And Sometimes I know the answer to that question just from reading it, which gets at a really important thing about the way we work. We only read aloud. We don't, there's no homework. There's no, you know, staring at a manuscript. We just have the experience together and respond. And often I know a lot before the group even starts talking about how something is working because I've noticed a lot of things just reading it aloud to them. Um, and so, you know, they, we help each other at all different phases. People are at different points with different projects. But in some ways, for me, the most helpful thing is bringing in stuff early and finding out just wh whether it has a pulse wh or whether I'm undermining it in some way, which has really happened. You know, doing things narratively that are really a bummer, but somehow I think they're cool. Um, and, you know, they, <laughs> I can be, I'm quickly dis disabused of that notion now and then. Um, so it's really, really helpful for me. I, I need that feedback. I know you've done a lot of deeply reported journalism um, separate to your work in, in fiction. Um, I think of your profile of Jamie King, the model, quite often. It's something that I come back to and, and read. It's such a humane portrait of a young woman, and I think that is kind of rare in, in our media. Um, and I was just wondering, I mean, there's obviously so much work that goes into, into your journalism. Um, does, does your journalism feed your fiction, or, or does your fiction feed your journalism at all? Is there any interplay between the two? I think there is. They they are so different as as writing practices. They're almost opposite. With fiction, as I was describing, I am basically I have to discover the world that I'm going to be dealing with. I guess I'm also creating it, but it feels it needs to feel like a discovery. With and and so the writing process itself is what generates the material. As a journalist, I'm dealing with the real world. That's the material. And the project is one of synthesis and distillation and, and trying to achieve a very brief uh, expertise in an often pretty complex body of material and experience. Uh, and then distill it in writing, which I can often do in like five days because the project is really all mental. There's a kind of clarity that I need to achieve. And then if I can just capture that clarity I'm, I've done my job. And that's, I think, why I use a computer rather than handwriting. I can't even imagine writing journalism by hand. So those are, that, those are the way in, ways in which they're different. I think fiction writing helps me as a journalist because it gives me a certain, um, 
I have a tendency to observe little things about people that can sometimes be fun to include in a description of them, but maybe I wouldn't be looking for those things if I didn't write fiction. Just little human details about the way people function, what, what how they move through a room, what they sound like. Um, so I, I think there's a kind of, and, and also just what is a good scene? You know, as I'm, as I'm listening to something, I will, I will be aware of some really alive dialogue that I'm witness to. So some of those skills, I think, can sometimes be, any good journalist can do that. The more important interaction, though, I think that the journalism has fed the fiction in really, really big ways, partly because it just expands my universe. You know, it, it, it increases every time, almost exponentially, the number of people I've interacted with and spoken to about all kinds of things. And again, as someone who doesn't write about myself, I really need that. And I, I think it also keeps me engaged with the culture in an immediate way that can start to slip in a person, in a baby boomer, <laughs> um, even a young baby boomer. Um, so I, I like that sense of just being really deeply and immediately connected to contemporary life in a, in a professional way. Um, and some of the realms that I've ended up writing about in journalism, I, I agreed to write about because they interested me. And therefore, the, that brief expertise that I attained was very useful in fiction. And just for one immediate, immediate example for the Candy House, it's the opioid problem in America, which is massive and, and has only gotten worse during the pandemic. But I wrote about women with opioid dependency who become pregnant and what happens to them and to their children. And I became part of a really a community of women in recovery in two different cities, going to methadone clinics and also trying to become mothers. Um, and I learned a lot about the world of opioid recovery through that work that was really useful to me in the Candy House. The last time that you were at Sydney Writers' Festival in 2018, um, you did the closing address and, and spoke a bit about, you know, that paradox of technology, the possibility and the threat of constant connectedness. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, in the years since then, um, a lot's happened in the world <laughs> and we've all spent <laughs> a lot of time on using technology probably in ways that we didn't before. What, like, how do you think about technology in our lives now? Do you think that it's, it's a source of good or a source of evil or is it something that helps freedom of expression? Is it something that hinders it? Sort of what did the last few years um, kind of change about your thinking? That's such a great question. I mean, I think it, there's no question that it has helped us a lot during the pandemic. I mean, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation now if it weren't for technology. There, there is a way in which it really has helped people to stay connected. And there's no denying, I think, that that's a good thing. Um, I mean, I didn't even know what Zoom was before <laughs> the pandemic. Um, and it's, you know, that that ability to meet. I mean, I, I found that if I, you know, had a Zoom drink with a friend, I really did feel more connected to that person. It, it wasn't a loss. It was a gain. And I think there's, it's always the combination with technology. One problem we have uh, repeatedly is that it's very hard to see what the unintended consequences will be. I mean, look at the combustion engine. It took us, you know, half a century to figure out that, or even longer, that, that it was actually really detrimental to the planet. And by the time we figured that out, we were so intertwined with this technology that it's a hell of a job to figure out how to detach. Um, so I don't think there are any easy answers. And certainly in fiction, I personally am not interested in being lectured or scolded when I read fiction. I really do it for the fun and I write it to be fun. So if I feel that something is just scary and bad, it's unlikely that I would be writing about it. Um, but 
you know, certainly looking at American life right now, I feel like we're seeing a very scary side of this technology. I mean, what we thought would bring us more fact and and more truth (laughs) is in fact a tool of a kind of mass psychosis of, of untruth. You know, there are people who are, there are institutions making an enormous amount of money by um, telling Americans and, and involving them in communities that are fueled by conspiracy theories that really amount to a mass psychosis. And, you know, I say this as someone who had a brother who was schizophrenic and lived with psychosis every day, and it was a real challenge for him. And he was very articulate about the challenge, but it's, you know, if you are imbibing information every day that is false and living by that information, that false information, you're technically in a psychotic state and the technology is really enabling that. That is really worrisome to me. And I don't know, I, I'm not sure what we do about that. Uh, so the answer is it's it's all of that, you know? And I think I look at younger people. I, I mean, of course, there's a lot of hand-wringing about how much time people spend on their phones, et cetera. But when I look at my kids' generation, I actually see... Uh, people who seem to have this fairly well under control. So I, I think that we have to have some faith in younger people who are growing up with these technologies and also want very much to work together as humans and and improve our lot and the lot of our planet and want to be productive as individuals to manage some of these things and, and learn better ways of managing them. I want to ask you about taking risks with writing and experimenting with form. And I guess the, you know, the chapter in The Candy House that I keep coming back to is written entirely in emails. And it's it's this incredible flitting between all of this constellation of characters, all of these messages, and it has tension and pace and you understand the personality of each character. It's just incredible. Um, but I imagine that there was a time when you weren't sure if that chapter would work, um, or maybe you had you were very confident from the start. But I wonder, you know, when do you know that it's time to that something's not going to work, and, and or are you someone that just keeps ploughing through and you want to make the experiment into a whole? Well, it's interesting that you bring up that chapter. I am, I almost never am sure something will work. I, I very much tend toward the, um, I, I don't know, pessimism is probably too strong a word, but I, I always assume that things could very easily not work. I would say a third to a half of the first draft material that I write ends up being unusable for one reason or another. Interestingly, with the with the email or Slack or whatever it is, we don't really know what kind of uh, electronic communication it is. With that chapter, I wrote it very. I wrote the beginning of it very quickly, and I thought, okay, this is a disaster. And I read it to the writing group, and they had a very different reaction. They they found it. They were into it, and so that's a case of something that I might have just put to the side if I hadn't if I hadn't gotten a little bit of a high sign from them that it actually felt, I thought it was just chaotic and impossible to follow. They had no trouble following it. So often they, you know, I underestimate what I'm doing and they can be very helpful in in their excitement then ratifies whatever it is that I'm doing. Um, In terms of giving up and when to give up, that's a really... That's something that I'm I'm always turning over in my mind too. And I have certainly walked away from a lot of material, especially in the Candy House and Goon Squad. I think that the what makes me feel that it's time to walk away is when doing so is just a relief. You know, when I am not imaginatively drawn back toward that. So here's an example. I've written maybe 200 pages of a new project that I... I, str- I felt like I had sort of reached an, 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 kind of a stalemate. It just didn't feel like it was moving forward. So I decided I'm going to type this up and read it. Um, I haven't actually finished that, so I haven't read it, and I still don't know. But what I find is that imaginatively, I'm still 
leaning toward that time and place, I just find my, my mind going there, which is a very good sign for the project. Because what it means is that, yes, I may have gone off the rails. I think I probably have. But if I'm still inclined toward the world of it, there's, there's probably something there that's worth revisiting. So I do pay attention to my own level of interest. And if it flags, if it flags beyond a certain point, then it really is time to walk away. And I'm, I monitor that pretty carefully. Um, very shortly, we're going to open the floor to a couple of questions. If you have any, um, please come to the front. There'll be some microphones um, just in the middle of each aisle. Don't be shy. Um, and just before we do that, I have one last question, which is a, a huge um, fangirl question, if you'll grant me that. Um, but I guess, you know, do you think that you're finished with these characters and this world now after a visit from the Goon Squad and the Candy House? Or is there a chance, fingers crossed, that you might return in the future? I, do, I think there's a chance, definitely, that I would return. I mean, there's more unfinished business. There's more. Every single time I write about one more person, I've introduced a new, you know, a new possible set of other people to pursue. So I have, I'm curious about some people. I, I have a few, some, actually some formal things that I still haven't been able to do that I would love to try. So those two things are there. I think the question is, you know, would it become a book? That I don't know. And I didn't really know that with The Candy House for a while either. I don't want to just write kind of paler echoes of earlier projects. So, it, 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 so the question would just be, is it cohering into something that has its own organic, structural, and thematic integrity? If I feel that happening, then I would be, you know, I'd be thrilled but I think it probably would take a while again. You know, there's, it's 12 years between Goon Squad and the Candy House. And in a way, that's no accident because it's, it, the world has changed very radically, as, as you say. And in a funny way, you know, I wrote a lot of the Candy House, or maybe a third of the first draft material of what we see here in, from 2010 to 2013. Then I put it aside. When I took it back out, and there was a lot that didn't work at all, in a certain way, I felt like, you know, I took it back out of the drawer in, the, when, in 2016. So Trump was now president and it had been Obama in the time that I was writing the, the material originally. And in a way, I think many Americans would agree that the Trump presidency ushered in the beginning of a pretty mad era in American life. In a strange way, that, that the material I had written in those earlier years felt more relevant and alive to me in 2016, more immediately um, worth pursuing than it had back when I originally wrote it. So there's, I guess all I'm saying is it's helpful to have a, a bunch of time pass so that there is a different world to interact with in some sense. But I would, I hope, I would love to, why not? That's great news. <laughs> um, <laughs> if anyone has a question, please come up to the mic. Anything you want to ask, um, that would be wonderful because I've asked all of my questions. Hi, it's kind of a follow-up question to your last question. If, um, would you be interested in taking any of the characters from the Candy House and turning them into a standalone novel? And if you had to, who would you choose? Oh, that is a great question. Um, you know, I have thought about, about if I were to return to this material... I've, I've had the thought that one way to mix things up would be to focus much more closely rather than to do another rollicking ensemble piece. That in a way, another rollicking ensemble piece might just feel a bit familiar if I do it again. It'll be the third time. And so that has occurred to me. What if I just, what if I chose a slice of this world and, and, dove in in a really deep way there. And I don't know, I, I'm going to just give you an impulsive answer since that's kind of how I function um, and say that often I'm most drawn to people who seem the most alienating in the sense that we know them the least. They, they seem to be a little more 
two-dimensional than, than other people in the book. And so the person who I think best matches that description in The Candy House is a very minor character named Kathy, who is the um, sort of frenemy slash doubles partner of Stephanie Salazar. Um, we, we don't know a lot about her. She's, she's really a pill, I think, by any description. Um, you know, she's, she's snobby. She doesn't seem to pay much attention to her kids. Um, she's a little bitchy. And, but we also know that her son goes on to die of an overdose, her son, Colin. And I, there's a lot there that feels rich to me. I think it would be if I could find a way into Kathy and, and show us what the world looks like from her point of view, I think that would be a surprise because right now she's as close as I ever want to get to a character that we just, it is sort of just there to be hated. <laughs> um, I don't really like doing that. Uh, but, and, and, it, and, it, and for me, it feels like an invitation. It's an invitation to open her up and, and, and experience myself and share with readers how the world fits together in her mind. We'll see. <laughs> Who's next? We've got one over here. A change of tack. How did you formulate the idea for Manhattan Beach and come to write this historical novel? Well, in some ways, similarly to the way that I approach these more um, ensemble books, a few things. One was, so the list, sort of the abstract list of concerns. I was very curious about the war years in New York. And I think that may have originated with 9-11, which I, during which I lived in New York heard the second plane hit and witnessed firsthand that the city became a war zone in the course of an afternoon. And it led me really naturally, I think it led a lot of people, to wonder what it was like to be in New York during World War II when the feeling at the time was that it, could, that it was a very porous and vulnerable place. So I was interested in that. I, ha I, I wanted to use the noir in some sense. I find genre very... Um, just so enticing as a, as a kind of atmospheric component. So I was thinking about the war years, noir, and I also felt like it was time for me to write a book that was kind of explicitly feminist in some way or really about being female. And part of that is that I'm so drawn to writing from a male point of view and a lot of my work skews that way. So I just felt like let's let's you know I am a feminist I'm I believe in women so powerfully let's let's just go there let's let's tell a story like that the thing that's funny is that page for page um, Manhattan Beach is once again more dominated by male points of view but the the woman is really at the core of it and then so I, and then I guess that in terms of what really powered the story. It was a dialectic between the research that I did and the writing itself. Um, and the research suggested a lot of things that would come up. And I did a fair amount of research even before starting Manhattan Beach, like in the early, the first decade of the 21st century, I was involved in an oral history project, interviewing women who had worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Um, I read lots of oral histories. I read collections of letters and Certain things came up again and again, a proximity to gangsters. There, was, there were a lot of mentions of gangsters, which is like not something you sort of encounter all the time in New York life nowadays. Um, there, you know, the, 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 the just ubiquitous quality of the waterfront as a center of commerce was something that was just always present. Um, and so I, I, you know, in the way that I descri described, like writing five to seven pages a day, wrote my way into a first draft that, it, that brought some of these elements into play and then just revised endlessly until I had a book. Probably got time for one last question. Yeah, sure. I'm sorry, I really wanted to ask this because I love you. Um, <laughs> uh, so you spoke about um, when you write, you, you always try to find a way for the character to be sympathetic to you and to the reader in some way. Um, do you think there are characters that are totally unsympathetic and in your opinion, and not just in your work, but is there any reason 
as an author to explore people who are totally unsympathetic? Is there any worth that that brings? Well, you know, it's interesting because I guess what I, my immediate reaction is if I am writing about them, they shouldn't be totally unsympathetic. I mean, yes. So my answer is yes. I'm very drawn, just as I said earlier about Kathy, to people who seem to be unsympathetic or another way of putting that would just be kind of unknowable. So for example, Lulu, who I write about in a, lo a lot in The Candy House, in, the, in Goon Squad is a, a minor and very opaque character. She seems sort of unknowable. She's a kind of, um, she's a very sort of bossy and domineering child. And then she's a kind of shiny, uh, unknowable young adult. And the very fact that she seems so unknowable, I think is what drew me to her. And I think the same is true with unsympathetic people. But let's say, let's say I wanted to write about a murderer, someone who likes to commit murder. <laughs> That's pretty, I'm not sure it gets any more unsympathetic than that. I feel like the challenge would be, while not in any way suggesting that it, this is a good way to be, to be deep enough inside that person's perspective that the reader feels the necessity of, of committing murder in the same way that this person does. And it's, that's a sort of unappealing prospect to me in a way, because I feel like mentally that's where I would have to go to, to feel I was really doing my job. Otherwise, to take someone who naturally would seem to be unsympathetic and portray them as being, the problem is that I think it might be boring. Um, and that is the unforgivable sin in fiction writing. So I don't know, it's a, it would be, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge. Um, but my, my, my immediate thought is no, I have to make them, I have to make us care. Now, maybe we can care even if they remain totally unsympathetic. That's okay. I guess if we care, then yes, I would still be doing my job, but it's hard for me to see how I would make people care if we didn't feel deep enough inside their minds, their mind that the choices they make feel like the right choices. Wonderful. And we are right on time. Unfortunately, there is uh, no more time left on the clock. But if everyone uh, could join me in thanking Jennifer Egan. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's been wonderful to speak with you. And if anyone hasn't read The Candy House, of course, it's available at the bookstore for you to uh, purchase on your way out. Um, thanks again, everyone. Um, and thank you, Jennifer. Enjoy the rest of your whirlwind book tour. <laughs> Thank you all, and thank you for the great questions. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.